Can you bring me that Bible right there, buddy? Thanks, man. Online gaming. Thank you. It is as popular as it's ever been. I've never gotten into it, and I think there's a lot to lament about online gaming. The many, 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 many wasted hours that people spend staring at a screen, both young and old alike. Nevertheless, there is some aspect of gaming that allows young people to stretch their imaginations, to press into their creativity. There is some benefit, especially as in some of these games they learn about things like architecture and city planning, even if they don't really realize that that's what they're learning about. One such game allows a player to build a virtual kingdom from the ground up. Walls for protection, castles for the nobility, wars with the peasants, fields for the animals and for farming. And as you build this kingdom, it can look any way you please. Well, what if that weren't just a virtual reality? What if I were to tell you that you could build your own kingdom and that you had the authority to do so any way you pleased? How might you go about building your kingdom? Would you win the hearts of the people with kindness and with deeds of mercy and grace? Would you gather your loyal subjects through elegant oratory and Solomonic wisdom? How might you deal with your enemies? Would you try to win them over with grace? Or would you crush them in one foul swoop? For the good of the kingdom, of course. How would you ensure that the kingdom was safe? Or that the people had sufficient supply of basics like food, water, and clothing? How would you ensure that the kingdom remained strong for many generations after you, perhaps even seeing your throne endure forever? How might you grow your kingdom? It's one thing to inherit a kingdom. It's another thing entirely to build a kingdom from the ground up. Such a line of questioning might feel funny to us as Americans, right? Why? Well, it's because we don't live in a kingdom. We live in a democratic republic. We have presidents, not kings. Moreover, we have a system of checks and balances to ensure that no one person or no one party gets more power than it ought. No more authority in the land. But the truth is, we do live in a kingdom. We live in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We live in God's kingdom. As we saw earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus isn't just going around preaching about himself. His preaching about himself is in connection with the kingdom. He's going around calling all men to repent of their sins and to believe in Jesus Christ because the kingdom of God is at hand. What he means when he says that the kingdom of God is at hand is simple. At the present moment, the earth is populated by all sorts of kingdoms. And all of these kingdoms have their kings and rulers. But as Jesus arrives on the scene, the kingdom of God is bursting forth and breaking through. His throne will lay waste to all other thrones. His kingdom 
will supplant all the other kingdoms of the earth. Unlike so many rulers from the ancient Babylonians and Persians to modern day America, King Jesus is not going to overthrow these kingdoms and merely insert his own puppet king. His throne will be the throne that reigns. He is the king of all. But the fullness of Jesus' reign, it hasn't come upon us yet, right? If, if the kingdom of God is perfect peace and justice being ruled by King Jesus, we look around and we say, it has not yet arrived. It's only just begun. But as Christians, we do know for certain that King Jesus is reigning. We know that his kingdom is coming. We know that his kingdom is growing. But how is his kingdom growing? How is Jesus Christ building his kingdom? How will he? Will he build his kingdom through political action or through war? Will he build his kingdom through charismatic leaders or through monks in caves? What will the coming of the kingdom of God be like? Well, I think that's what Jesus intends to teach us this morning from Mark chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown into the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Some of us this morning grew up on a farm. Probably some of the older members among us. Some of us may be avid horticulturalists or botanists. If you don't know what those words mean, maybe some of us just like flowers a lot. Most of us, however, and now I'm thinking of the younger members of the church, have never worked on a farm. We've never tended a garden or done any sort of farming, really. Jesus' use of farming parables may seem to some of the younger members of the congregation like Jesus is trying to obscure the truth from us. But for Jesus' hearers, these parables would have drawn from their everyday experiences in life. And so as Jesus talks about seed sowing and plants growing and laying the sickle to the harvest, 
his listeners would have probably seen these words just as much as they would have heard them. I know a thing or two about planting and gardening and farming myself. Allow me to demonstrate. Here's how wheat works. You take a wheat seed, you put it in the ground, and then it grows. Okay, obviously I'm not a botanist. I don't really know anything about farming, and that joke was not funny. <laughs> I can't explain to you how all of the complex chemical processes take place when something like wheat grows. And isn't that the point of Jesus' first parable? The one who sows the seed, he doesn't really know how the seed turns into the wheat. Jesus says, in fact, from verse 27, he knows not how. For weeks on end, there's nothing. You plant the seed in the ground, you cover it up, week after week, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then, there's something. Before you know it, a shoot begins to emerge from the earth. And then that shoot grows tall and green, and soon the green wheat stalk turns brown, at which point it's time to harvest. The kingdom of God is like that. It cannot be manufactured. It cannot be rushed. The seeds of the kingdom may be sown. As a matter of fact, they must be sown. It's the command of God that every person who lives in his kingdom is a sower of the seed. But after the seed is sown, there is nothing left for you to do. You can't make the seed grow. You cannot make the seed turn into wheat. We cannot turn the seed of God's word into the kingdom of God. It doesn't work like that. No matter what we do, We cannot make it grow. As a farmer will tell you, and any farmer will tell you, he cannot make his crop grow. Imagine the anxiety of being a farmer. You live off of the earth. You live off of your crops. This is how your family will survive. And you know that last winter, it did not go well. Your crop failed. So you plant. And you wish that there's something you could do. You hope that there's something you can do. You want to do whatever you can do to make sure that this harvest comes in, but every farmer knows there's nothing you can do. Everything that you do to ensure the health of a crop happens before planting the seed. You can till the earth, and you can do it with skill. You can make sure that the seed you sow is good seed. You can make sure that you plant at just the right time to ensure maximal harvest but you cannot make that seed bear life once it's been planted in the dirt. No dances. You can't do a rain dance. You can go out and sing to the field. That's not going to make it grow. There's no special potion that you can pour on the ground. No, the farmer just has to plant the seed and go on with his life and trust the process. Jesus says in verse 27, Speaking of the farmer, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. There's nothing that he can do. He goes to bed, he raises up in the morning, he lives his life, and that's that. 
Now, such an idea may seem obvious to us, right? It may seem obvious that once the seed's in the ground, you can't make it grow. But, in fact, it's not that obvious to everyone. Many Christians who misunderstand the way the kingdom of God works, they think that they can plant their seed and then make that seed grow. They think that they can plant the seed and then make God's kingdom come as a result of their seed planting. And nothing could be further from the truth. You can look in the Bible. You see Peter. He wrongly believed that the kingdom would be advanced by force. Such an idea is a confusion of how the kingdom of God works and what it is. It's because of this sort of misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God is and how it grows that Christians in the 12th century waged nine crusades to go capture the Holy Land. It was because of this kind of misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God is and how it works that a group of Anabaptists took over the city of Munster in 1534, thinking that they could use force to usher in the kingdom of God. It was a misunderstanding of this kingdom and how it works that led Augustine to use civil authority to quell schism in the church and that led the city council of Geneva to burn Michael Servetus at the stake for his anti-Trinitarian heresy. It's this kind of misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God is and how it functions that causes Christians to embark on crusades to end poverty forever, as if that were possible. Jesus said, the poor will be with us forever. It's this kind of misunderstanding that leads Christians to, to go out on a crusade to try to bring ultimate peace and prosperity on the earth through various forms of utopian government, whether that's socialism light or full-blown communism. Such Christians are like a farmer who goes out to the field, grasping a hold of a tiny shoot that has only just begun to pop its way out of the dirt. The farmer is ready for the wheat to be here now, and so he yanks on the chute, hoping to pull the wheat up out of the ground by sheer force. Well, as foolish as that sounds, it's not as foolish as we Christians look when we try to expedite the coming of the kingdom of God by force, whether that be political or civil or any other form. There will be a harvest one day. The crops will come in. The green wheat will turn brown. And Jesus Christ will harvest all the earth. Jesus uses here in the scripture we read today the language of Joel 3.13, where the prophet talks about the judgment day as the day when the sickle will tear through the earth. You guys know what a sickle is? You ever seen the grim reaper and how he's standing there with that thing? That's a sickle. And that's what people would use to clear the fields, to cut down the wheat to do the harvest. And the Bible pictures the Lord Jesus as coming with his sickle to render judgment on all the earth. Revelation 14 picks up on that theme and it says this, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, 
and the earth was harvested. Hey, don't worry about the seeds, brothers and sisters. It doesn't do you any good. Who of you can add even a single day or hour to his life by worrying? Who are you can expedite the process of the kingdom of God by even a minute, by worrying about it, by stressing over it, by trying to usher it in yourself? Rather, be ready for the harvest. That is something that you can participate in. You can work in the life of this church to make sure that you and your brothers and sisters in Christ are ready for, when the, for the day when Jesus Christ comes back and swings his sickle through the earth, rendering judgment. It will come and it will happen. And there are only two groups of people, the wheat and the chaff. And we'll come back to that later. So if we can't force the kingdom of God, and if we can't rush the kingdom of God, then how ought we to live as it continues to break forth into the world? Well, I think the answer to that is that we simply work faithfully and we wait patiently. We work faithfully and we wait patiently. What we need now, brothers and sisters, as we wait for the day of the Lord to come, is patience. I've known a few farmers in my day, not many, but by and large they all share one attribute, and that's patience. A farmer recognizes his inability to control the crop. He still works hard on the front end, but after the seed's been planted, he recognizes that there is nothing left for him to do, and so he waits patiently. Another way to say that is that he trusts with patience. Another way to say that is that he faithfully waits. Well, what about you? Are you trusting God? Are you comfortable with God's timing? Or are you trying to rush it? Do you trust that He's doing the work to bring His kingdom to this earth? Or do you think that He needs something special to speed up the process? Do you think that you have something amazing that you can offer the Lord to further the kingdom of God? Here's the thing about God. Because He's God, He doesn't need anything from anyone. Even you. Even me. The Lord will build His kingdom no matter what. It's already begun. And it will culminate. In the meantime, you don't need to be overly concerned with expediting the process. God's kingdom is not like Amazon.com. You cannot pay a little extra to expedite the shipping. Before moving on to the next parable, I want to talk about the farmer. Is the farmer God, as some commentators believe him to be? Or is the farmer the minister of the word that I am persuaded that he is after a conversation with a good friend earlier this week? Well, I think that that's beside the point. This parable isn't so much about the farmer as it is the process of the growth of the kingdom of God. You remember last week when I was teaching on parables and I said we shouldn't try to plumb the depths of every detail of every parable looking for spiritual significance? Well, I think that that applies here as well. The point isn't identifying the farmer, but rather the farmer's ignorance of the growth process. The point is that once the seed has been planted, the crops will surely come to pass. And the crop of the kingdom of God is grown 
from the seed of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus went down into the earth, dying like a seed, and then was raised to new life. And unlike so many crops which fail to produce a harvest due to pestilence or drought, the gospel crop of the kingdom of God, which was purchased by Jesus Christ, will surely come to pass. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't know the Lord of the harvest, you should know that you will be a part of the harvest. Christ will come and everyone will be harvested. All those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ will be made new. They will rise and they will be with Him forever. Those who have not turned to Jesus Christ will be like the chaff and they will be burned up by the fire of God's righteous wrath. But Christ came to save all who would repent and believe in Him. And if you have not repented, and if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do not wait thinking that the harvest will surely not come until I'm ready. The harvest will come when you least expect it. And the only way that you can be prepared is to know that you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is going to come. It is coming. It's here now. And one day, every single human being will bow the knee to King Jesus. Some will bow the knee to King Jesus as a conquered servant. Others will bow the knee to King Jesus as a beloved son and daughter. Finally, as we finish with this parable and move on to the mustard seed, we should note the mystery of this illustration. Last week we talked about mystery and we noticed, we noticed how certain things are hidden, if only for a time. We said that one soil was good, another was bad. We asked, why does Jesus reveal the truth to some and not others? But why does anything have to be hidden at all? Well, the Bible is full of such mystery. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he doesn't understand how a person can be born again. And to which Jesus responds, the wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. The tension of how God sovereignly brings about His purposes in a world where man's will is alive and active is a mystery indeed. Ultimately, all of us must say along with every farmer, I don't know how it works, but I know that it does. We may not understand what God does, or the way that God does it, or the timing that God chooses, but we can trust that He's moving to accomplish all of His good purposes. Isaiah 14 reads, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. Although the kingdom of God utilizes human effort, it is in no way dependent upon human effort. As Paul says, some plant, some water, but who gives the growth? God. What we need now is to trust in God's perfect timing. We need to trust in God's ability to bring His kingdom to pass. I know that we live in the kingdom of Satan right now, it seems. 
And because of that, we endure pain and hardships, anger, suffering, doubt, discouragement. But the kingdom of Christ will be a perfect kingdom of peace. And like all good things, the kingdom of God comes to those who patiently wait. Jesus' next parable of the mustard seed, it tends to confuse many Christians. It confounds them. They read it and they're like, I don't know what Jesus is talking about here. Well, I think it confuses us because we're trying to be overly deep. We're trying to be so deep in understanding the meaning of Jesus' parable. But I think the meaning is actually sitting right on the surface. Let's read it again together to make sure that we have it fresh in our minds from Mark chapter 4. And he said, what can we compare the kingdom of God? With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Well, the point of this parable is simple. If you're taking notes, here it is. The kingdom of God has small beginnings. The kingdom of God has small beginnings. You aren't really supposed to spend a whole lot of time asking yourself what the birds that nest in the bush represent or whether or not the mustard seed really is the smallest seed of all the seeds. In case you're wondering, I think Jesus is using hyperbole. He also says that the, the mustard tree is the biggest tree in all the garden and there are many gardens that have trees that are bigger than a mustard tree. Don't overthink this one. But rather, you should be thinking about the tremendous contrast between the seed and the bush, right? Well, what is the kingdom of God like? Well, it's like this. It's like a tiny, 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 tiny little thing. So tiny that if you drop it on the floor, you might not ever find it again. Can everybody see that? You can't see it, right? Well, there's nothing there. But it could have been a mustard seed. And that's the point. A mustard seed is so small, you can't even barely see it. Can a bird rest in the shade of a mustard seed? No. A bird is literally a million times larger than a mustard seed. But once the seed is planted and then it grows up into a mustard seed tree, now the bird can rest in the shade of the tree. You see, that's not so complicated. Well, why does this matter? Why does Jesus want us to meditate on the contrast between the seed of God's word and the fullness of the kingdom of God? Well, I think it's because of how massive the idea of the kingdom of God is. I mean, think about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is infinitely larger than the federal government. And that is massive. So massive that I would say that nobody can really control it. The kingdom of God is monumental. We are talking perfect peace, perfect justice, perfect rule and reign on this earth. All sin, all disease, all evil, all hardship, all pain, done, gone, wiped away. This is literally heaven on earth. 
And so we say as humans, surely, if the Lord is going to bring about this kind of kingdom, He has to do it in some massive way. He would have to do something huge. It would have to be a global event. It would have to be a massive revolution. Well, not exactly. The truth is that God's kingdom does not come to the earth in enormity. It doesn't break forth into the world through kings and wars and trumpets ushering in the call of the revolution. Rather, the kingdom of God comes in the form of a baby born in the backwaters of a small nation called Israel. This baby grows up into a boy, and that boy grows up into a man, and that man becomes a carpenter, a tecton, literally, a man who works with his hands. Not a lawyer, not someone who masters human thought of law, not a doctor, someone who masters the concept of the human body, not a historian, someone who thinks they can figure out the dialectic of human history, not a scholar, someone who thinks they can use their logic and reason to plumb the very depths of the infinite truths of the world, or in our case, non-truths in our modern day. He came as a carpenter. And when this man does begin to kind of set things in motion, when he kind of kicks off what he's going to do with the kingdom, he doesn't do it by rallying militias or gathering armies. But rather, he calls himself 12 men. 12 men. He doesn't incite political hostility or rebellion. He goes around preaching. And what he preaches isn't down with Rome. He says the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and trust me. Rather than rallying the masses... We see in the first three chapters of Mark that we've been walking through together that he often evades the crowds when they begin to gather around him. Rather than trying to influence the rich and the powerful, he loves and serves the poor and the lowly, the downtrodden. Rather than flattering those in authority, trying to curry favor with them, he condemns them to their faces. At one point, a massive crowd was following him, Massive, massive crowd. And he preaches one sermon that has one hard saying and nearly everyone abandons him. A few people stayed with him, but they also later abandoned him when his life, as well as theirs, was put on the line. Not only did this guy, this man, not only did he choose 12 followers, he, cho 12, he chose 12 of the most unlikely followers People that you do not build a world revolution around. People that you do not think are going to be the architects of the coming kingdom of God. He chooses poor fishermen. Uneducated workmen. Scandalous tax collectors. Political zealots. Even some of the women he brings in are ex-prostitutes. And they weren't ex when he called them. When this man finally gets his audience with the governor and then the king, he doesn't try to maneuver politically, but he remains silent like a lamb before the slaughter. Finally, this boy from the backwaters of Nazareth, 
dies as a man on a cross. And he dies a criminal's death. A death of complete dishonor and shame. His followers, having abandoned him just a few hours prior, a poor boy from nowhere dies a dishonorable death all alone in a conquered land after only three years of ministry in a country no larger than a few hundred square miles. That, my friends, is small beginnings. That is the size of a mustard seed, one might say. But this man's death was not the last word because this was no mere man. This was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This was God in the flesh, the second person of Trinity, the very Son of God Himself. And after three days in the grave, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was raised to new life. The seed went into the earth, it died, and He was raised to new life. And such is the same for everyone who repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ. After His resurrection, Jesus regathers His ragtag team, His mustard seed team, as I like to think of it, and He sends them out to the world to preach about Jesus and what He's done to save sinners. And these followers, these disciples, these Christ-ians, as they became to be called, they followed in the same path as their Master. Rather than engaging in political warfare and social revolution, they simply go about preaching and teaching and praying and serving, calling all men everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. When they gather a few believers into a small group, they call it a church, which literally just means gathering. And it is from here, the church, that God ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. What plan does God have to build his church? Is it political machinery? Is it fancy oratory? Is it revolutionary armies? Is it scholarly activity? No. It's the church. The church is the instrument through which the kingdom of God is breaking forth on this earth. Ephesians 3.10 says, It is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, God makes known to every ruler and authority, whether Nero in Rome or President Trump in America and all of Satan and his minions, he blasts the announcement, your rule and reign is done. Your wisdom is no wisdom. It's folly. And my kingdom is coming. The thing that's so amazing about these churches is that they don't do anything amazing. There's nothing grandiose. At least there shouldn't be. If you see a church that is trying to usher in the kingdom by being big and grandiose and doing the coolest, newest, most expensive things that the world loves, I'd say as far away from that church as possible. What's so remarkable about the church is that there's nothing remarkable about it. The thing that the Lord uses to turn the world on its head is a bunch of saved sinners who meet up a few times a week to build each other up in the faith, to worship God, and to advance the gospel. 
this. It's hard to imagine that this, what we're doing right now, is what the Lord has chosen to be the wisdom that confounds the kings, rulers, and principalities of the earth. And yet it is. The church preaches God's word and teaches God's word and prays God's word and sings God's word God's word, and sends out more disciples to evangelize with God's word and to reproduce more churches. And that's what these early Christians did, these followers of Jesus. They preached God's word. They died martyrs' deaths in the Roman Colosseum. They labored amongst the poor, the destitute, the widows and the orphans, the slaves and the criminals. They didn't overthrow Nero. They didn't topple the Roman government. Rather, they built hospitals and orphanages and schools and churches. And the church is still laboring today. Even this church. Even Sixth Avenue. The Lord is laboring and bringing in His kingdom through this church. To look at this church is to see a mustard seed church. Not long ago, this church was on the verge of closing its doors. Even now that we're not quite on the precipice, we have less than 30 members. We have no real ministry funds to speak of. We can't throw money at our problems. Your pastor doesn't even have a high school diploma, much less an advanced degree from a seminary. This room is full of ex-drunks and ex-drug addicts and ex-hypocrites, ex-thieves. This room is full of a whole lot of nothing special, just like Jesus' first 12 disciples. In 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul talks about the kind of people that will inherit the kingdom, he gives a long list, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and then right after that, he tells the Corinthians, and such were some of you. The fact is that the kingdom of God is being ushered in through a gathering of people who were all deserving of hell, who were all deserving of God's wrath, who were all in one way or another rebelling against their maker. And I love, I love this. After he says, such were some of you, he says, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the church. So friends, if the Lord is with us, if the Lord is with this church, even this church, this church will be used by God to bring more birds into the shade of the tree of God's kingdom. May it be so. Let me pray. Your kingdom come, Father. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.